you have to understand the opponent that you're facing in this addiction is cunning, baffling, and powerful. It'll trick you into thinking many things that just end up feeding it. You know, it doesn't care about you. It doesn't care about your future. You are listening to an Opioid Crisis Public Awareness Podcast, produced by the Cook County Sheriff's Office. Opioid-related overdose deaths kill more people than car crashes or gun violence in Cook County. In this podcast, you will hear an edited interview with one man brought back from the brink of an overdose death. In May of 2018, Cook County Sheriff's officers discovered this man unconscious on the bathroom floor of the Skokie Courthouse. They used the life-saving drug naloxone to revive him, and the dramatic event was captured on body camera footage. At the time of this podcast interview, this man was in Cook County Jail facing drug charges and receiving drug treatment. He wanted to share his story of addiction, one that runs from prescription pills to heroin, in the hopes of helping others understand this problem. Let's start with where this man says it all began for him. When I started using addictive substances, I already had an addiction, and that was the gym and mixed martial arts training. That's what made me feel good every time. During that time of the day, right after I'd train, I'd feel really good. And one day, it just so happened that I asked somebody to spot me on a shoulder press machine, and he, instead of helping, he was pulling the opposite direction and he was making it harder. And it was weight that I would usually push, so I kept trying and trying until I hurt my right shoulder. And as soon as I hurt my right shoulder, I went to the doctor, a sports orthopedist, not knowing anything about painkillers or expecting anything about painkillers. I just wanted the pain to go away and reside so I can continue on with my training. But I got prescribed opioids. It was hydrocodone at first. And when I took that medication, I was taking it as prescribed, but I did feel the euphoric side effects from the medication, and they were very, very pulling, to say the least. It was something that I enjoyed very much. So what does it feel like? It just feels like you have not a worry in the world, and you just feel like you're surrounded by a really warm blanket and intense euphoria, and you have the best sleep you will ever have in that night, and any re- any stress, you're numbed down to it. it. It just takes everything, all the pain away. At what point would you say that it went from using opioids for treatment to abusing them? It turned into abuse after that doctor stopped prescribing me that medication, I went to a different doctor and he quickly put me right back onto it. And he started to up the dosages. Once I got to oxycodone, that's when I, it turned to abuse because I saw the, the much more powerful effect of different opioid substances and how much more powerful they were in reaching that point of euphoria that I was I'm trying to chase. So when did this occur? This was about four years ago, three years ago. And you were just getting out of high school then? 
I was in, just got out of high school and I was in college. What did you want to do in college? Kinesiology or pharmacology and, and become a physician's assistant or a pharmacist. So when you would use, were you doing it on your own or were you doing it with friends? Was it something that everybody knew about? Nobody knew it except for my family. And my family actually saw the addiction coming. And they went to the doctor and they, I think my mom was crying and she was asking him to stop prescribing me the medication. But what he, because I was abusing it and I had just overdosed and I was at a psychiatric ward because they wanted to send me to rehab because I was a danger to myself at that time with the amount of opioids that I was taking and benzodiazepines, which both cause a respiratory, res respiratory depressant effect on you and make you stop breathing. That's how I overdosed. So my family was really worried, and they asked the doctor to stop, and the doctor basically gave no attention to them. And when I got out of re uh, rehab, I went back to the doctor, and he quickly started me back on the same medication and even up the doses. So you were on opioids and Xanax pills when you first OD'd. And how old were you when you first OD'd? I was 19 or 20 years old when I first OD'd. Do you remember what happened? Yes. I went to my cousin's house, and I was playing video games, and I just took too much at that point, and I turned blue. My cousin tried slapping me around, putting water on my face, and I was unresponsive. They called my family, and my family came there, and they were worried, sick, and they were, like, just going crazy seeing me like that. And so finally the paramedics came, and they revived me with Narcan. So how many times have you OD'd since then? I'd say I probably have 14 overdoses total. Here's the thing about it, though. This is what will really sh show you how how strong of an effect this this drug takes on you. I, I'm waking up from an overdose. I'm literally, like, heart stopped, you know, dead. And within the first five minutes, one of the biggest questions that comes to my mind is, where is the rest of my heroin? Did they take it from me? Did they find it? Did I stash it before I overdosed? Because without the substance, I have a disconnection with myself, you know. It feels like you can say that it's like another entity inside of you that's asking to feed it and nothing else matters besides you feeling better. So when I'm in that position where I'm not feeling myself, feeling like myself and that disconnection is going on, it's impossible for me to form a connection with somebody else, especially family members and and any friends, random people that I would talk to, like on the way to the gym or in school. And the disconnection grew. It grew and it forced me to stop going to college because my addiction was so bad. I was getting prescribed fentanyl at that point by my doctor. And the sickness was just too overpowering. You know, I've had suicidal thoughts about, I planned it out how I could take a lot of drugs and just end the suffering. Because in the, in the first few times you use these kind of substances, it's nothing but pure bliss and fun, and you're always chasing that feeling. But once you become physically dependent to it, then you start feeling the lows of the high, because they're attached together. 
and the lows are, I'd say, even lower than the high. What does that feel like? The lows, just disconnection. Uh, the physical part is, you know, you're sweating, you can't sleep, hot and cold flashes, diarrhea, uh, bone aches, muscle cramps, inability to concentrate. And that's the acute phase that lasts about 10 days. After that, it's followed by a gruesomely long post-acute withdrawal syndrome, and that depends on how many, what kind of opioids you are using, your neurochemical properties, and your tolerance just grows so much, your body gets so adapted to it that you can't function without it. No matter how bad you want to, you know, there'll be times where my mom would know I'm going to go score some, some heroin. And I'd see the look on her face and it would break my heart because she knows what I'm up to and she knows I'm up to no good. And no kid would ever want to see their mom that sad. You know, it just tears them apart. But I couldn't control myself. I was powerless over it. That's one of the first steps in the 12 steps, admitting that you're powerless. So I ended up going to the dope spot and coming back and still feeling bad about the situation with my family, but luckily I'm, I'm blessed to have a family that still keeps me with them, while a lot of people don't have that kind of kind of support, which is very beneficial towards recovery. And like I was saying before, when you don't have hope like that, you almost look at the only option as using more drugs because anything else, you anything else, containing sobriety into it and recovery, like working a job and staying sober and whatnot, it's just an overburden. It's really hard to continue life like that. You mentioned that your family was was obviously very distraught, but also supportive. Have they been able to get you into rehab? Yeah, they've gotten me into rehab. And rehab, I learned a lot from it. I learned all the tools, but when I get out, it's I'm like a ticking time bomb. and. Uh, methadone was something that I noticed kept me clean for a year and a half. What made that one period of your life work for you when you weren't using, besides the methadone? What what got you to that point? That's a good question. I got a really uh, exciting story about that. And it started with uh, my dealer. This is a guy that I put a lot of money in his pockets, and I've been shopping with him for years. So he was really disrespectful. I just felt like scum at that point. I was like, wow, I'm degrading myself so much. I'm being like a, a slave to this drug. I don't want to do this anymore. I'm not even getting that high anymore. I'm just doing it to function and not have that separation with myself so I can still be a functional human being at home, albeit I still have to redose multiple times in a day and take more heroin. But that stressed me out a lot when he said the things that he said to me. And at that point, I was like, you know what, screw this. I've heard about methadone. I'm just going to try methadone. I don't want to see this guy anymore. After all the money that I've put in his pocket and he's going to cry over a gram of heroin when you should be thanking somebody like me for putting money in his pockets and having him have an easy living, you know, I was really upset about that. So I went to the methadone clinic and I found my dose and I had no more withdrawals whatsoever. The post-acute withdrawals were gone. I didn't have any cravings. I wasn't feeling bad about myself, and I was able to communicate with my family finally, and 
and that was something that drew us closer together. It was a good time at that point. You know, honestly, I find it really surprising that a fight with your dealer would, would get you to that point, but not, you know, your mother or your father or, or, or all of your overdoses. Yeah. Yeah, because you know what? When you're on heroin, you're a selfish, selfish human being. And that's not because you want to be that way. That's because the way that your brain is functioning right now is running on heroin. You know, a car, you can't drive a car with no gas. And basically, that's a pretty good metaphor. You can't function without that heroin. And that disconnection with myself, even though I tell myself I have to do this for my family too, I don't want them to suffer. I tried doing it for my family so many times, but you can't do it for your family. You have to do it for yourself. That could be one of the external motivators that would help you get to that point, but you mostly have to want to do it for yourself. So for those who have family members who are struggling with this addiction, and I know there are, there are a lot of opinions about, about medications to take, um, different inpatient, uh, outpatient facilities to go to, um, but from your, your opinion, from your experience where you sit today, what do you think those family members can, can do to help? Well, you can't expect them to get clean overnight. That's one thing. So don't stress yourself out if you, if you don't see them making the right changes right away. But try to, try to compromise with them. Try to get them more open-minded, to be open-minded into trying a maintenance program if you think that they're still going to use, even, th even though rehab has failed and whatnot, everything that you tried, if it's, if it's failed, then you got to start thinking outside the box and trying something else. Because right now what's going on all over America is there's this fentanyl that's going inside of each bag and it's, and th it's impossible to dose it. It's impossible to measure out accur accurate doses. And, you know, they're not being created by a pharmaceutical company. They're being created by someone with some beakers in a basement. You know, and they're just mixing it up in a coffee blender, literally a coffee blender. How can you expect a coffee blender to equally distribute a drug that is so potent that an amount as small as a grain of salt is enough to kill somebody, multiple people? That's how powerful fentanyl is. So with everything that you've, you've been through, I'm sure that there are times when, when you feel like giving up. You know, after overdosing, going to rehab, and staying clean and then and then falling again um and almost dying again and and that cycle how do you feel now do you feel that like when when you leave do you think you'll use again in my circumstances personally no a lot of people might say no though and be in denial you know because once they get hit, hit with everything in the world that reminds them of the drug usage, the people, the places, the things, it's enough to make them relapse. And there's like a 90% relapse rate among people who do go to rehab, so. But I, have, I find some honest hope. Thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing. In a note to listeners, records show the doctor referenced in this interview was sanctioned by the state for the inappropriate prescribing of medications. Also, the man in this interview has settled a related lawsuit. It is important to know that there is always hope for someone suffering from addiction. If you or someone you know needs help, please reach out to medical professionals for guidance. You can start at the federally run National Helpline, that 
free referral source is 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. Thank you for listening.